This is Rod Allen. And this is John Maida. And this is Free Range Humans, a place where we consider how to make schools fit for human consumption. Joel, today we're going to be talking with Shane Safir and Jamila Duggan. Shane uh, is an innovator at heart. Uh, she has a rare combination of leadership and instructional expertise. Her voice resonates with educators who want to reinvent their schools, their organizations into places of equitable learning and transformative learning. Um, really excited to be to be talking with Shane today. Um, she and Jamila both do a bunch of work uh, up here in Canada as well, and, and it's just a, a great privilege. Uh, Jamila began her career as a teacher in Washington, Washington D.C. Uh, she was nominated for Teacher of the Year and uh, served as a coach for new teachers in Oakland, California. Uh, as a school administrator, um, she championed equity-centered student services and parent and student empowerment. And she's currently uh, an equity-centered leadership development coach uh, across a number of sectors. Jamila and Shane began their work together seven years ago during the development of The Listening Leader, for which Jamila acted as the primary researcher. Welcome. Great to have you both with us. Yes, welcome. It's great to have you here and to, and thanks for agreeing to spend some time with us. Thanks for having us. It's great to see yeah, you. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. So uh, let's start with The Listening Leader. Uh, one of my favorite uh, books, uh, really of all time, um, definitely in the sort of school reform uh, world. Why don't you just tell us a little bit, uh, I know we're here to talk about street data, but um, I found that uh, to be a really powerful book with my students and anyone with whom I've worked. So maybe we could just sort of start there and then we could move towards the present. Uh, um, maybe Shane, I'll start with you. Tell us a little bit about the origins of the, of the listing leader. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's such an honor that you used the book, Joel. Thank you for sharing that. I think the listening leader was a very personal book and project. It came largely out of my own experience as a leader and out of many years of struggle as a leader to build, you know, a healthy culture, to build a culture um, that was empowering for the teachers and, and folks in the building. And um, what seemed to become this really apparent pattern over time is that when adult culture was breaking down, I could trace it nine times out of 10 to a struggle to listen, right? A failure to listen well. And um, it's interesting because when I was contracted to write that book for Josie Bass, I was told, you know, it's, it's really not going to sell well because people don't want to learn about listening. They, they think of listening as a soft skill. <laughs> they think of it as... Um, you know, just secondary to the important things like data, ironically, given the new book. And uh, could have changed the title, maybe should have, who knows, but went with what felt authentic to me, which is we need to really unpack this super complex skill set and figure out why it takes so many leaders and so many cultures um, kind of off the rails. So, so that was really the origin story for me. Um, and a lot of my own, you know, struggles and failures are written into the book, as you may know. Yeah, um, maybe you could share uh, one of those uh, stories. I always tell my students before they read it, this is going to be a great book because you're going to learn skills and strategies, but you're also going to see very candidly and honestly uh, one person struggle when they didn't listen and what the consequences were of that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, looking back on my time as a principal, which is now 
close to 20 years ago. Um, I think that I wasn't necessarily trained to be a listening leader. I wasn't trained to be a, a effective leader or to begin um, decision making with deep listening. Um, and in some ways, on the flip side, I feel like listening is the perfect anchor skill for emergent leadership, right? It's like when you can't script your path forward, when you can't develop the perfect strategic plan that tells you exactly what to do, your navigational tool is to learn how to listen really well, and particularly where there are pain points in the system, right? Or where people are feeling tension or feeling harm or hurt. And so I think that often I thought that the plan was the solution, or I thought that the technical, you know, having the best professional learning plan or having a great curriculum, you know, we were doing all these innovative things at June Jordan. Um, but if that's not, as I learned, you know, nurtured in a culture that's really rooted in listening and deep empathy and care. And as Jamila and I have further developed, not just listening in a neutral sense, but listening at the margins, listening with an equity lens. Um, then it's just easy to really perpetuate a lot of um, harm and sort of problematic dynamics in a staff. But I'd love to hear what Jamila thinks, because she was so instrumental in that book. Yeah, I think it's interesting, because whenever we talk about listening later, I just go back to when you first told me about it and I was and you were like, do you feel like this makes sense? And I was like, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so many people talk about leadership and without mentioning many titles, it's all about what you should do and what you should do very quickly and what you should do systematically and quickly and then faster again. Um, and so when you first told me about the listening leader, I, I think what was the most um, compelling piece of it to me was it was human. It was really about slowing down and thinking about leadership as a day-to-day -day practice, a full body practice. And so I think um, I, I will continue to feel like listening, listening leader is one of the best books um, out. And uh, I mean, there's some stories in there as well from some of my experience as a leader. And I think that, especially when you're talking about equity, we have been, uh, our systems have essentially been designed for us not to listen to people. So it's like a double whammy, right? Where already we're talking about improvement so quickly, but then there's this additional layer where um, you shouldn't be listening to some of the folks in our system. And so I think that's another important piece of it. Jamila, could, could you unpack that a little bit more? Because I think that's a really profound statement that our, our, our system is designed or, or, and some of the skills and strategies that we've learned as leaders in the system have been around learning not to listen. Could, can, you, can you unpack that a little bit more for us? Yeah, Brad. I mean, so all of us are in education, right? So I'm sure we could all bring up numerous stories around this, this idea. But when we think about change, you have something on paper that tells you what to do. And that plan has come from the same place essentially over and over again. It's, it's um, typically from improvement science, right? Which says you, you know, figure out a problem and then you create a plan to solve it. And Shane and I talk a lot about, and I know um, all of you talk about this as well, there's a huge connection to white supremacy within this. And so there is a way of being and there is a way of doing things. Um, and so in that way of doing things, which is also in street data with epistemology, you follow that plan, do, act, cycle. And in that listening is not involved at all. You can look at all of the plan, do, cycles, listening is not a piece of this. And it's a really important uh, uh, thing to, to realize that 
if we're consistently in these cycles and wills where we're just trying to do things, we're going to continuously undermine people who are not a part of the systems that have been designed, right? If I say it's designed based on white supremacy, then automatically anyone else is not a part of that conversation and anyone else is not a part of how we might approach change. I hope that helps, Ron. I don't know. Oh, that was great. Thank you. Thank you. Jamila started to make these connections. Jamila, maybe you can go first this time. Um, so yeah, tell us a little bit about the origins of uh, street data. Um, what What's the sort of like main idea there for people who haven't read the book and uh, what, what got you so excited about it? Oh my gosh, Joel, isn't it such a great book? Don't you feel like it's- It is so such awesome? a great book. I feel like it's such a fantastic book. And what I what I think is so great about the origin story is it's, there's so much simplicity in this book, Street Data, right? We were talking about the listening leader and this, this idea of humanization, being human in leadership. And I mean, Shane will definitely do a better job with this because it really is rooted in the, in the listening leader book. But I think the idea is that if we're going to work toward equity, um, which I can de define much later. Um, but if we're going to work toward equity, we really need to look at everything that we're doing. And the central piece we're looking at is our use of data. How is data perpetuating that first piece I mentioned around white supremacy, but how is it holding us hostage? How is data keeping us from being transformative, not only like in general leadership, but in pedagogy? So I think street data, the, the argument there um, I think less the origin, but the argument there is that we have got to disrupt or disentangle ourselves from um, traditional data metrics, approaches to data, which are all in that, again, improvement science uh, domain and radically reimagine and move toward using humans or centering humans um, in the way that we measure success and really what we would say is agency. Shane, what would you say about the origin piece? I feel like that's the argument, but the origin, I don't know. That was just a mic drop. I'm like, I don't have much to add. That was brilliant. Um, I mean, the first thing I would say is I just, I'm really deeply proud of this book. I think, frankly, in my humble opinion, it's a better book than The Listening Leader. And I think that that's largely because I collaborated with Jamila on it, who among her millions of strains is just such a sharp thinker and pushes for coherence. And like she said, simplicity, like, what are the most essential pieces, right, of this model that we can include here? So I feel like the book somehow just emerged as something fairly coherent <laughs> and tight. Um, and it's fun to take it out into the world because I think we're getting to build the model with people, right, in partnership with districts and systems as we work on it. Um, and going back to the listening leader, I think for me, street data is a systems framework right, for change and transformation, but it's really animated by the day-to-day -day practice of deep listening. So there is like this Venn diagram, right? Listening leader is about all these like micro moves you make, and there's some actual stuff about listening in street data, but street data is like goes up on the balcony and it says this, this paradigm we've been, you know, inhabiting for the last two decades now um, is so deeply flawed and um what would it look like as jamil said to just radically reimagine it to really tear at the foundation to kind of question and interrogate all the assumptions we have about what is data 
How do we know what we know? Why do we value what we value? That's really where we start in the book, right? With these questions of epistemology. Um, and so it just feels, I don't know, it just feels very exciting and, and, and fresh and, um, I don't know, engaging even to me. I don't know if that makes any sense. Even as somebody who kind of co-wrote it, like I'm, I want to keep thinking about how to make it more real and alive. That's great. I feel like uh, in many cases, by the time you actually get a book out, you feel like, you know, you're, you're so done with the content. So, right. um, so uh, there are a lot of uh, criticisms of quantitative data that I think have become, you know, fairly familiar, the way that which they constrain teaching or people teach to the test, cultural bias. But I thought one thing that was interesting about the um, framing of your book is it's it's kind of deeper than that. You're you kind of make an argument about like holistic or Eastern epistemologies and indigenous epistemologies and Western epistemologies. Can you sort of tell us a little bit about that? Like what what's wrong with the sort of paradigm that most of us in the West operate within probably like, you know, fish in the water without even really seeing it much of the time? Yeah, I think that, you know, when we began writing this book, these questions around epistemology were not present in the original outline. And it was actually a push from um, a scholar I deeply regard and respect, Sean Jinwright, to to dig a little deeper, to pull at this thread that was like peeking out and sort of asking to be pulled. And um, serendipity had it that I met the two of you and had a really transformative learning experience in British Columbia that churned up all of these questions that ended up in the beginning of the book. And I think, um, you know, for me, there was this alignment between the lived experience in Couchin led by elders and our colleagues around what does it mean to, to really center children? What does it mean to create a classroom that is a village in the deepest, most like authentic sense um, that aligned with values I'd always held as an educator, but I didn't have a way to think about them or a way, a place to put them. And I remember Michelle who helped to lead that, that experience saying, you know, all of you are from a village at some point in your history. Um, and so this kind of strange synergy of having like gone to Ireland and seen the village where some of my people were from and then having this experience with you all and then feeling what it means to have children at the center is the same time as Sean Jinwright is saying, talk about epistemology, talk about why we believe what we believe. How do we know what we know? And it all just kind of came together into this, um, this deep inquiry, right? Of like, why do we accept that quantitative metrics are the only way to gauge success and to tell us about equity? I think at some point in the book we wrote, you know, we're kind of, we've been sold this bill of goods that our students are deficient that our communities are broken, right? That something's, there's all these gaps that we have to fill. And it's a really self-serving narrative that upholds white supremacy, that upholds inequity. Um, and so it was a privilege to get to untangle some of that and begin to, to reimagine what it could look like. Yeah, Shane. So I will, Jaw and Rod, I'm going to just tell you that right now epistemology is keeping me up at night. It's something that I'm like thinking about over and over and over again. It's conjured up something that I'm trying to process over and over as a Black woman, to be quite honest, because I've been thinking about who is the conversation around epistemology for? 
who is centered in that conversation and, and what does that really mean um, when we when we think about the way we talk about epistemology. And so when I, I'm going to first go back to your question, Jaw, around what's the problem with the focus on quantitative measures? I actually don't think that there's a problem with, you know, having quantitative measures a part of how we define or measure things. That's important. I need to know if a kid can read, period. My colleague, Dr. Charles Cole, always talks about if, if, if Black kids can't read in a classroom, that's problematic. And there are tools that will help me understand if a child can read. Thank you. I need those things, right? Um, but does that tell me the whole story, right? Same for graduation rates, all of those things, you know, who's going to college, all of that uh, can give me some sense of information. But when I get to college, though, am I my whole person? Am I my whole self? Am I able to be who I really am? Can my family come here and feel like they're comfortable? Let's go into the classroom. Do I feel like this classroom is set up for me to learn about myself and other people in the world? Not only is it like, is it set up for me to learn about other people in the world, but which people am I learning about? And who's teaching me about those people? And how are they talking about those people? All of those are questions of epistemology. And they're also, they're things that we can measure, right? But quantitative quantitatively, I might look at a curriculum and see the numbers of books there, right, who are featuring different demographics, but my experience in the classroom is much different, and that is where we start to think about qualitative measures, and real specifically, because I cannot stand as a researcher myself, when people are like, oh, qualitative, like, you know, that's soft stuff, what are you talking about? We're talking about story, we're talking about artifacts, we are talking about measurable, tangible things, oral language. We are talking about things that really we can see in the classroom that demonstrate whether someone really knows something or not. And the last thing I'll just say as, as a black woman, one of the things that's one of the things that's been so powerful for me in thinking about what we measure and how we know what we know is I've been able to tap into all of the knowledge. I have about who I am and who I've been and who I can become. We were talking, John, I think this relates earlier about like our kids learning to walk to school. That is really important. A lot of kids can fill in bubble tests, but can't tell you left and right when they're trying to get directions. They can't walk to school by themselves. They're afraid to do all of these other things that are just as important as some of these more quantitative measures. So if you start talking about epistemology, you might want to cut that part short because I could spend the entire time talking about epistemology, especially just coming from Tanzania, just flip the whole epistemology conversation and what success completely on its head. So I'll stop there. I, I want to hear about that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just wanted to pick up on one thread of what you said. We were watching a video in class uh, last week um, of a, of a white teacher teaching uh, mostly Black and Latinx kids about the civil rights movement. This is from the Measures of Effective Teaching Study. So um, like, you know, maybe eight years ago. And um, if you looked at it in one way, like if you looked, if somebody had been coding, like where her questions open-ended or close-ended or the kinds of things that get measured, the class would have come out okay. But if you felt what was happening, you had this white woman sort of like leading these students of color to a destination in a very decontextualized, like who is the subject of this poem? What's this like, you know, what should like, how should we mark this stanza, blah, 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 blah. And like, you could just like feel the like oppressiveness of the class and it sort of overrode 
the like what was like technically would have been measured through the pedagogy, the tone and the culture and the nature of the relationships. And so um, when we debriefed it, it was just um, the contrast between the tone and the like the like visible content just made it so clear how important the, 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 the tone, the nature of the relationships, the context are to really understanding what's happening in a given situation. So as well as uh, being co-authors, um, you also, you don't just drop the book and run. Um, you actually work with groups um, and helping them uh, use those ideas, go deeper into those ideas, um, respond to the, to the kinds of things that you're, that you're, that you're talking about. Um, uh, what, have, what have you learned as you, as you, as you start? Um, and not start because it's not like you weren't putting these things, uh, these ideas into practice previously. But but what what are you learning uh, post writing the book and and working with groups of of educators and people, um, in in uh, and putting this work into practice? I can start on that. I mean, I think I'll start with more of a self reflective lens, which is we're learning how hard it is to be about this work to model these ideas in our own lives. And we're constantly wrestling, Jamila and I, with um, what does it mean to live a holistic life? What does it mean to be parents who are trying to decolonize our parenting? What does it mean to set boundaries around the work? I mean, we're being asked to do a lot in a lot of places right now. And we're trying to, Jamila is doing a really amazing job modeling just like healthy boundaries. And I'm trying to get better at that. And so I think that's really real. Like it's one thing to pontificate about these ideas. And it's another thing to say, I'm going to try to exemplify them or practice them along with other people. Um, but if I look at the field, there's, there's three things that I think have been really resounding with me as we begin to bring this book out. One is that people are really hungry for this kind of model and this, this depth of change in their thinking and mindsets and practices. The second is that people are really scared that we've been, you know, trapped in this dominant paradigm for so long. There's a sense of like, I don't know, what would we do if we didn't have, you know, standardized tests driving all our decisions? And like, how would we even think about equity? How would we make any decisions if we didn't have test scores, you know, company and everything? So there's a, there's a level of like hunger coupled with fear and anxiety that I sense. Um, and then the last part, which feels pretty hopeful, is that people really want to know how. Like, I feel like I'm having far fewer conversations litigating these ideas. People are like, yeah, I'm, I'm really vibing with this. Like, I, this, is, this is compelling, but they're like, how do I do it? What does it look like to use the equity transformation cycle? What does it look like to listen deeply at the margins? Um, what does it look like to center student agency when we think about assessment? And as I alluded to earlier, we don't have all those answers. We're building some of that, you know, building the plan as we fly it. But it, that's an exciting um, edge of the field to be in conversation with folks around. Draw, I wanted to re like spawn when you said earlier, when you were just talking about what you had observed in, in the classroom. Sure. And this idea of, you know, how we would measure something if we looked at it one way and, and how you all really saw it. And I think that's a piece of what I'm learning is what happens when I put this lens on it? Whatever that lens is. What happens if I just change the lens a little bit? I feel like there's so many different things that are starting to emerge when you really um, start to 
narrow your lens in some ways, right? Instead of looking at the test score, what did that tell me? Let me narrow in on the interactions between the teacher and the kid or the teacher and the caregiver. Those kinds of, that kind of narrowing, I feel like is teaching me a lot about what really matters, to be honest. It's much more finite. And then that finite stuff leads to big, amazing things, right? It's, the macro is still important, but that finite piece in my own life, I, I'm learning that uh, Shane knows that I've done some street data interviews with my children and have gotten feedback on my parenting. And, you know, I'm walking around here thinking I'm, you know, doing my thing. And my son shared with me that I was controlling, that I needed to work on that. And it really took <laughs> a lot of work to narrow in and then also say to myself, you're going to listen to him and the data that he provides you is real data and it is incumbent on you to respond with him around that data. I'm learning so much about that narrowing piece and then how I orient and how I've internalized white supremacy as well myself. That has been a big piece and I'm seeing how leaders, as we're working with folks in the field, how they're working against a system that is, I mean, essentially setting them up to fail over and over again. And when you think about COVID, when you think about COVID and the amount of times I'm talking to a central office leader or a principal and then a teacher who is so committed to trying to disrupt systems and do right by kids, but is just having stuff dumped on them over and over again, that doesn't make any sense and is completely misaligned with who they are and what they need. I think I'm learning, as Shane said, that this is really hard. This is really hard and there's not a lot in place for us to actually live out the street data model. It's, it's, it's a going against the grain in a way that's fundamental. And that's really, really tricky. I'm definitely seeing that and that can, that can be hard sometimes, but there is hope. There is hope. You, you got to watch out when you take these, uh, you know, change leadership books too seriously. Like I read adaptive leadership when I was like, I don't know, starting as a professor and it was like, oh, surface the conflict. And I was like, oh, I'll, I'll try this with my wife. And, uh, you know, like things that have been sort of like bubbling along just under the surface. If it says like surface the conflict, I was like, OK, I'm going to surface the conflict. And uh, it didn't go well. And I was talking it over with my best friend. And he was like, that just sounds like academic ease for like picking a fight. And I was like, oh. <laughs> Let's fight to battles. It, so. Is that the difference between uh, knowledge and wisdom? <laughs> <laughs> Good, could be. I also want to credit you, Jamila, because Shane said, I think uh, at your book launch, I was, or one of your book launches, I was there. And Shane said it had led to some deep realizations about her parenting. And I said, okay, like what? And she was like, oh, I'm going to save that for another day, like not on air. So <laughs> credit for you for, for actually sharing it uh, publicly. Jamila, you, you brought up COVID and, and it's, it's, we are, we're all aware of the, of the huge impacts that's had across the system, uh, systems ar around the world uh, and how it's accelerated and, and amplified so many issues uh, that have, that have existed and continue to exist. What what should our priorities be? What should what should we be really paying attention to as we as we you know return to school, kids coming back face to face. In in much of Canada, we never left the face to face phase, but we our schools were still very much impacted by 
uh, by COVID and what, what should we be paying attention to now? What kind of priorities should we be having? This is another one of those questions where I'm processing a lot right now. I feel like there's like a whole transformation in my brain occurring uh, in, the, in this last month and I think going in the future. So I'm going to try to answer that as best as I can, knowing that what I'm, I'm trying to figure out, how do I make what I don't believe is radical um, fit into the way our discourse around schools and, and such and change? And so I guess what I'd say is two things. First of all, in the book Street Data, we say choose the margin. So again, Jane and I have been trying that on and we asked our kids what you believe we should focus on given COVID. And my son and my daughter said that we should focus on human interaction. They said team building, class building, you know, we just want to be comfortable in the classroom. So that's what they said as kids, right? I, I know what that means, but let me take that up to the adult level. We should be focusing on human beings connecting with human beings. And I was a kindergarten teacher. And one of the things that baffles me, you're one of those people, not you, Rod and Jal, but if you're one of those people who's really bought into the Common Core Standards, the foundation is oral language. And oral language is tightly related to story and talking. I could get a kid much faster to reading by getting them engaged in oral language and talking much faster than I can get them on drilling on some sort of test or whatever, you know, fluency checklist or whatever we're, we're doing. And so I think we have a huge missed opportunity with understanding the power of connecting. I said to other leaders and I said it to Shane and I have not achieved this, but someone said to me, why are you so upset about how we're handling COVID? Because for me, we should be spending the first six months of school, I really mean this, on reconnecting. What does it mean to go to school? What are friends? What's a community? How do we operate? What do you care about? All of those things. And I guarantee you, if you create a community where kids feel the bomb, like this is my space, oh, they'll read. They'll write. They'll do all of those things way faster if they really believe this is a space for me. So I would say first, Human interaction, connection, rebuilding. How do we interact? Don't forget all the, the kids been on YouTube and iPads and all. Like, I don't, even, I don't at this point, I don't even know why I would be using school in many ways. So I think that piece is really important. And then second to that, which I think is, is more to that radical piece, is that I think that we should maybe like start all over again. <laughs> And this whole idea that what matters is trying to get back on track to making sure we're college ready and all of that, like we should, I'm not going to curse. We should just cut that like right now. Innovation is happening. The entire workforce, we, I can't even predict what's going to happen, but I can tell you right now, half the skills that we have been taught, you don't need them anymore. And we've known this from, you know, lots of studies with 21st century learning and all of that. But the way kids are learning, what they know, what they can do, the future. Think of like if you want to go on the side of Elon Musk and cars and space. I mean, we're, we're doing things that have nothing to do with sitting in rows. And when you think about COVID, the entire way that we are being with one another is something that I don't even understand yet. So we should have our eye to the future, not college. College might be a part of that, but what's the future ahead of that thing? We should really be thinking about that and then realign to that because that future has so much possibility. And if you were in the generation before, I think we'd see that too, right? You might've been thinking about 
I don't know what you were thinking, people were thinking about in that generation, but then we had cell phones and iPads. Some kids were getting that future thought and some kids were not. That same thing is happening now. And so I think with COVID, we should have been taking this as the biggest disruption we've ever had and saying, yeah, now what's the future like given all of these different things? And let's, let's get active on that because that gets me energized and my kids energized as well. Shane, what's your, what's your take? I love that answer. And you'll find my take is not, not dissimilar from Jamila's. I mean, I think the first thing I feel like we should be focusing on in schools right now is mental health and well-being. Um, I think it's like a huge shadow crisis in our schools and classrooms. And from what I'm seeing in at least a traditional school setting, there are not mechanisms in place to gauging or even just being basically sensitive to what students are going through, um, let alone adults, right? I mean, I can. I, this is a fractal challenge to use your language, right? I can talk about a principal I spoke with a week ago who spent her Labor Day making 178 contact tracing calls for COVID because that's what she is being asked to do in her district right now. Um, I can think of, you know, administrators right now who have, who have like partners who are in the hospital with cancer and still trying to run schools. And we're just not even taught. We're just like marching through mandates and compliance and procedures without that human interaction to use Jamila's um, phrase at the center. And so I feel like mental health street data is a tool, right? If you do empathy interviews, if you do map data surveys, um, if you do reflective writing in your class, it's one tool to try to understand what students and adults are experiencing around mental health and well-being. The flip side of that is joy. I feel like now more than ever, our classrooms and our adult learning spaces should feel playful and mm-hmm. joyful and should be filled with music. And I don't know if we can have food because of COVID, but like breaking <laughs> bread, you know, just like opportunities to be creative and playful and joyful because we are all desperate and hungry for a little bit of joy in our lives right now. And then I think if I put on more of my like pedagogical lens, I really resonate with what Jamila was talking about around discussion. You know, I mean, I've always been a huge fan of discussion-based pedagogy, whether it's Socratic seminars or inquiry, but I, I think classrooms should be more than ever about discussion and what Dr. Muhammad, Golden Muhammad calls criticality, like giving students layered texts about this complex moment and world and globe we're living in and having them discuss big, juicy, complex ideas together. Um, and of course, you know, project-based learning and performance-based assessment and these, these instructional, you know, ideas that have been around for a long time. We know we know those help kids, right, engage and, and find agency as learners. So I would love to see, as Jamil talked about, this opening where people are willing to go more in those directions. Um, but I think it begins with the mental health and well-being for adults and kids. I think that point you made about um, conversation is another one of those fractal points that connects your listing leader to the kind of pedagogy. I mean, if you're an adult and you're in an organization and the leader is not listening to you, it is painful. And similarly, if you are a child and you are in a classroom and the teacher doesn't listen to you, it is also painful in like very similar uh, ways. And, you know, Boober talks about like I, it versus I, thou relationships, like the difference between sort of transactional relationships and relationships where we recognize each other's full humanity. And uh, I've, 
I think that's a big part of the essence of what you're you're talking about. So, so nobody's mentioned learning loss. <laughs> let, let me let me let me put a slightly more serious spin on that. Like I just opened the Boston Globe like an hour ago, and like the lead story is kids, you know, MCAS scores plummet, uh, you know, compared to pre, um, you know, pre-COVID. And so I suspect that a number of our listeners, particularly school leaders, are, you know, that they're getting those same emails, newspaper articles, like that is the world that they're facing. So it's easy for us in sort of like, you know, book writing land to be dismissive, but like, you know, you've both been in sort of with had the school leader hat, like, how, how would you handle that um, if you were in those shoes right now? I think one of the things that we're lucky to have is to work with school leaders who do in many ways go in a different direction and we get to have some of those models. It's very hard to do, but I feel very privileged to have two friends who are like, and I'm not going to do that. Now, they don't necessarily say that to everyone, but their orientation and the way that they practice is I'm not going to do that. And instead, they focus on some of the things that we've talked about in these books and you all have in your books as well, right? Slowing down and listening, creating the adult culture where people will trust you to do that, right? And have enough um, social capital in their districts to be able to do those kinds of things. And so I think on the one end, I really believe that you've got to have a moral imperative. This is one piece of it, right? A moral imperative that says this is deficit-based. This is based on something that is not good for kids. And so therefore, what am I going to do about that? How am I going to orient, right? And I, and I when I see leaders like that, it's so inspiring um, because not only do they, you know, have better outcomes for kids, but they enjoy their jobs. <laughs> a lot more. So I'd say that one piece. The second piece I would say is that like, it's a, it's a little bit less hopeful. And I know Shane's going to like bring that back so that, that there's hope um, in, in the conversation. But I think that we have to take care of ourselves and privilege ourselves a lot more. I, in this time of COVID have started to say no to much more. And I know that impacts people in some ways, but I, I, I was going crazy last year and it wasn't working for me and I had to take time off and that didn't help anyone. And so as a school leader, and, and so I, I used to run a principal preparation program. So we we're very, very busy. I had to start saying, when are you gonna shut off the email, Jamila? When are you going to actually say, this is too many things you're doing, which three are you going to do? Because I wasn't gonna make it. And so I, speaking to school leaders directly, I think we have to say it's okay to take care of ourselves a lot more because it's not going to work if we don't do that. Maybe that is hopeful. It is hopeful. For sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Shane, what, what, what do you think? If you were a principal faced with sort of learning loss from the newspapers or the state superintendent, like how, how would you respond? I think I would go to the students and ask their take on it. What do you feel you've lost? What do you feel you've gained? What are you longing for that you do have access to? What are you longing for that you don't have access to? Um, and let them tell their stories because, you know, there are obviously millions of stories of children 
and how they experienced this last year and a half. And those are all unique. And I think that's part of the, you know, underlying moral imperative of street data is to get close enough to kids so we know their stories and we don't generalize or encapsulate them in a metric and say, this is who you are, or this is where you're headed in life. Um, I do, I just believe they have so much, they have so much wisdom. They have so much wisdom for us. If we speak to them, if we talk to them, we listen. I think this, Jal, this might bring us to the lightning round. I think so. I think so. As longtime listeners of the show, folks will know that this is where we, um, longtime listeners, we've only been on 15 episodes. Anyway, um, <laughs> where, where we um, that is very impressive. move from uh, thoughtful, long answers to thoughtful, short answers um, in, in the lightning round. And so um, we will uh, begin. Um, Jamila, let's start with you and then, and then we'll reverse for the next question. Jamila, what's one thing that lots of people in education think is right that you think is wrong? Uh, going fast all the time, doing it all, all the time and having like 60 priorities and being like, oh, we can make this happen. We need to stop that. Pick two. Shane. A sense of urgency. Say a little bit more, please. <laughs> I mean, I think that has been the mantra of the equity movement in some corners for a while, um, or the self-declared sort of like movement for equity. And I think the work around white supremacy culture that's circulating a lot right now and older work by Tamo Kuhn and Ken Jones has positioned sense of urgency as a white supremacy culture feature or characteristic. And I think there's a lot of truth in that, the ways in which we dehumanize each other and harm one another when in the name of urgency, because that's what matters for the kids. I think it's a very real phenomenon. Nice. I'm trying to be brief. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. And I really wanted to add, and I was like, no, just be quiet. Yeah. <laughs> Good. All right. Shane, you're first. Uh, uh -oh. I, I used to think blank and now I think blank. Oh my God. I'm so bad at these. You guys, you're, you can edit this, right? We can. Jamila, if you have one, you, you could save Shane and uh, jump in yeah, first. Yeah, save me, save me. Uh, I was thinking about this to the question that you asked before, like, what is wrong? I used to think that in schools, I could give so much shared language and I could diversity it up and I could really, you know, get you to understand Black people and like all the struggle and people of color and all that and you know, that's my role. And what if we just understood better? And I think now I think that what would happen if white people focused on their history and white people talked about um, how they arrived to this place and white people started to think about what racism has done to them and why, you know, why you teach in that way. Not to say it's bad. Like there's this whole thing. It's like black, you know, people of color are doing it right and white people are doing it wrong. I used to think it was like that where now it's such, it's much more textured to me, where it's like, we've all internalized this. Let's stop making it like white people get to be experts on everybody. And then I got to affirm myself, we, we all need to get up into these, you know, how is this impacting me? And why do I operate this way? And I, I much more, I, I think that would get us somewhere better. Shane, I, I've been talking to Shane a lot about that. Like, how do we differentiate in a way where, you know, white people can really start to think about their own harm and pain 
and can think about how that's been put on other people um, and themselves. I'm see, it's going into long, see, keeping it short. That's what I thought. And that's what I think now. Nice work. I love it. Thanks. It reminds me of that Tony Morrison interview we sometimes show with Charlie Casey. It's brilliant. Um, I used to think that access to four-year universities was the most important equity metric for students leaving a K-12 system. And I'm not sure what I think is the most important, but I don't think it's that. I think um, I feel like a child's sense of well-being in the world, a child's sense of belonging and being loved and seen and valued in the skin they're in and the identities they carry is probably the most important thing that we should be paying attention to. Last question. What's one thing you wish policymakers understood that they do not understand? Yeah, one thing. <laughs> and you're going first on I am not saving you this time. I need to be saved. <laughs> we don't need your standardized tests to tell us if students are intelligent, progressing, or growing into the young people that they want to become. I wish that policymakers understood that we cannot have all the same kind of person in the room making decisions. If it is the same group of people that was there five years ago, you should change it. If they all look the same, if they all act the same, if they have the same background, the same credentials, you probably, we really need to change that. I really wish we would stop having the same people in the room making decisions that impact. Choose the margins instead. Shane and Jamila, thank you so much for this great conversation. We could appreciate the, the, the we need to add some questions, Jal, or some space for just uh, rants. Just, <laughs> we should do that. That's a rant. great idea. That'd be great for me. Exactly. I love that. That's, That's a great Wait, idea. Rod, do you know the chapter Equity Traps and Tropes 2? That chapter 2 was straight, yes. came straight from a rant. Shane, remember that rant, Shane? That was a rant. I think I started writing some things down while you were yeah. ranting. Yeah. Uh, it became did a you know that chapter. white supremacy culture was originally a rant? Oh, the, really? That yeah, I've, I found, I found, like, I was like, oh, white supremacy culture, like, where does it actually come from? Yeah. And yeah. I found an interview and she said she was sitting in a meeting and like, it was just so painful on so many levels that she just like got out of the meeting and started like scribbling, like what the problems were. And then, you know, went back and integrated it with the literature and thematically and blah and blah and blah. But like, it started just like in a meeting. Mm -hmm. Never underestimate a good rant. It's that intuitive knowing that's not valued on test scores. <laughs> And it's authenticity. That's, 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 mm -hmm. that's authentic. It's real. It's mm -hmm. much more real. Mm -hmm. This is Rod Allen. And this is John Leda. And this has been Free Range Humans, a place where we consider how to make schools fit for human consumption. Shane and Jamila, thank you so much for joining us today for the thoughtful conversation. And um, we're going to have to bring you back because you've left so many openings for, for future deep conversations. Thank you both. Thank you all for having us. This was great yeah. fun.